We are almost through our study of Thessalonians. We did 1 Thessalonians. Now we've been in 2 Thessalonians, and we've only got a couple sermons left, and then I think we finally, the pastors last week, finally made a decision of where we're going to go next. It's a secret. You'll have to come and, and see. Um, but, yeah, we don't have much time uh, left here. We pray that it's been a blessing. We pray that it's been an encouragement for you to look at the uh, the theme, if you will, uh, of the future, of the fact that no matter what the world looks like right now and what you're going through right now and what you feel like right now and what you perceive is happening right now, Jesus wins. And this is really why it is such a blessing for the believer to come and to look at passages like this that have to do with eschatology. And so today's going to be kind of your last dose of it as I get to close out kind of that topic of eschatology. Um, so hopefully you're ready for some more eschatology. Um, again, if you are a Christian, whether it's been for a week or it's been for 70 years, you are a student. None of us ever arrive or come to a place, including pastors and maybe even especially pastors, because they're, they're spending more time with their heads buried in the word of God and being overwhelmed with the depths and the layers of it. Um, we are always students. There's never a place that we come to to where we go, I've got this figured out. Especially on the gray topics or certain topics like eschatology, which I would call a gray topic. So here, here's what your eschatology should be. Here's, here's the black and white part of eschatology. Jesus is coming back and he wins. Okay. So like all of us should hold that eschatology. Okay. But the reason why there's so many other categories uh, of eschatology is because it's a tough one to go in and fully understand. And so I just want to qualify that before we move into this again, that we are all learning, okay? And uh, I, I want to seek and I want to encourage you to seek that which we can know, that which is clearly written in the text, rather than that which is not clearly written in the text. Because a lot of us have been taught systems in our lives that have really imposed or read into the text on the things that are given to us, especially when it comes to eschatology, okay? And that can get us in trouble, and it's not worth holding on to. So it's neat when we can all come to passages like this and just go, you know what, Lord? I, like, there's, not, there, there, there's no harm in knowing what your truth says. There's no harm in what you have for me here. Um, topple systems, you know? Change my mind, you know? Give me confirmation. Um, all that is what we, you know, desire when we go through texts like this. So Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we are at. Uh, it's been a longer break. Usually you'll, you'll get me the week right after, you know, obviously the previous guy. Uh, but Chad uh, taught his passage, I think, a couple weeks ago on this. And now I'm coming in a couple weeks later. So it's going to be a little bit detached, but I'll try to give you a little bit of a summary uh, as we get into it. So uh, for the sake of that context, we'll go ahead and read the whole of uh, the first 12 verses, I think. Of chapter 2, if I can get there. Chapter 2, 1 through 12. Chad ended up taking 1 through 5 a couple weeks ago. If you missed that, it's on the website. Go back and listen to it. We're going we're gonna to deal specifically today with 6 uh, through 12. But let's go ahead and read the, the, the whole section. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord 
has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Really easy verse, uh, passage of scripture. Uh, not a lot there to get hung up on or to consider. Um, I mean, this is the heavy stuff, right? Like when I was a new Christian, these were the only passages I would go to and just gorge myself on because they were mysterious and they were, you know, like um, they, they were Armageddon. You know what I mean? And it's like, that's exciting stuff. And, and uh, now I look at it as a, as a preacher and it's like, can I give this text to somebody else? You know what I mean? Um, do I have to preach through this? And so uh, it, it, it's a tough one, but here we go. This is kind of the last leg on our eschatology uh, uh, theme in the book of Thessalonians. So, um, like I said, go back and listen to Chad's sermon to get the first part. But here's basically um, a summary of the first five verses, basically a summary of what it is that uh, Chad taught on there. Okay, um, What it is, is Paul is setting out here to correct any misinformation that might have been fed to the Thessalonian church concerning Christ's return. That's what he's trying to do here, okay? Because they were fed some bad stuff. Whoever this was, however they contacted them, their message was, Jesus already returned, and we're really sorry, but you missed it. That's, ba- that's basically what's going on here. So, so Paul, uh, what Paul sets out to do is to assure them that they haven't missed it. He's assuring them that they haven't missed it. And he does this by assuring them that there are two things that must occur before Jesus comes back. Okay? So this is kind of where we're at. Number one, the rebellion must happen. A.K.A. the falling away. In other parts of Scripture is what this is known as, or the apostasy, or the great apostasy. That's one thing that must happen before Jesus comes back, according to Paul. The second thing that must happen is the man of lawlessness must be revealed. Verse 3. This is the guy we call the Antichrist, or the son of perdition. Paul is saying both these things must happen when? First. And again, if you guys have a problem with anything that you hear today, take it up with Paul when you see him. Don't call, don't take it up with me. I'm just gonna try to I'm kind of try to just give you what we're given here. Because because again, if if you were like me, you were you were taught some things that that might be a little different than what we're seeing Paul give us here. Uh, in fact, out of the same text, you might have been taught those contrary things. 
And so my goal, if I can be successful today uh, in, in coming through this, is just to, to make observations of what's clearly being taught here. Okay? I don't want to feed you anything extra. All right. So these two things must happen first. Uh, lawless, uh, the rebellion must happen. The man of lawlessness must be revealed. These aren't necessarily two completely different things, by the way. Right. I think a lot of times we can look at the um, maybe think about the rebellion, the falling away as a slow burn, something that happens over generations or over centuries. And that's that, not necessarily what, what it has to be here. One could be a result of the other. So this guy actually being revealed and what he brings and what he imposes could actually bring about the rebellion. They could be two in the same thing or the, the reason for the other. Okay, so they're not necessarily two completely separate things. Um, uh, however, what I what I really want us to notice here, and I've already slightly touched on it, I've emphasized it, but uh, we we have to do this again before we move into our text. Um, I want us to notice sequence. I want us I want us to notice and just pay attention to for a minute the sequence that Paul gives us in this text. That key word where sequence is found, is in the word first. First. It's so small and simple that I think we can read through passages like this and completely miss how important that word is for the interpretation of the passage. So the the key word first uh, has to do with timing. It has to do with sequence of these eschatological events unfolding, and, and that's found in verse 3, okay? Uh, that being that the return of Jesus, listen to this, the return of Jesus will not occur until these two things happen first. I don't know about you, I was taught the exact opposite. That Jesus comes for his church, returns for his church before these things happen. I don't know how I got that here. Okay? Back in in 1 Thessalonians, if you remember when we were there, chapter 4, we see this same key word as to sequence. It allows us to have order or timing when it comes to eschatology. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul's talking about the return of Jesus, which is the parousia, the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, right? And he, he he gives us the same thing, the same sequence when he revealed that the bodily resurrection precedes the rapture or comes first, right? which again ruins a lot of things that a lot of us have been taught. Let me read it for you real quick. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this we declare to you from a word from the Lord, verses verse 15 I'm reading out of, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not, what? Precede, will not precede those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. Okay, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. You ready? Then, meaning after first. Those who are alive and left will be raptured. Caught up. This is the sequence we have, the order that we have. In how things will happen. So if you, if you put all of this together with the word first in first Thessalonians and second Thessalonians in these two chapters, here's what we have. Before Jesus returns, we have a rebellion that's going to occur. We have the Antichrist who's going to come on the scene and be revealed. Then Jesus appears and he raises bodily the dead in Christ and then 
At the very end of it all, those who are alive and remain at that time are raptured. It's not at the front. It's at the back. According, not to my opinion, again, take this up with Paul when you see him, just according to a, a basic, a basic, like plain uh, exposition of, of what Paul gives us here when he talks about the end times. I, I know it's kind of like for some of you, like telling you that Santa Claus isn't real, but like it, it's, it's just, it's, and it was for me. Like that's how it was. For, I'm not trying to bag on anybody. Like, th- like I had to go through all this, you know what I mean? And find out that everything that I taught, that I went out and taught classes on, flew in the face of everything that's plainly seen without any gymnastics in these texts. Sequence is given to us, okay? And so I want us to uh, be challenged by that, but I want you to also be encouraged by that, okay? Um, I also want to say this. Um, Our eschatology, and I know I already said this at the beginning, is that Jesus wins and he's coming back. You and I do not need to divide in fellowship or love or unity in the faith over something like eschatology. Okay. My job right now, I get the pulpit, so I, I'm the one who gets to talk right now. If you came up here, you might, you might do something else with this text. But I know that I, because I'm the one here right now, I have the responsibility before my dad to try to do the, the best, most honest thing I can with this text. And so that's what I'm trying to do with you. Okay. At the end of all of this, you and I should be able to hug. Right, Judy? Like we, we, should, we should be able to love each other, encourage each other, and then move on through this thing we called life as a couple of Christians looking for the promised land, all right? The the bottom line is it's going to go down, all right? And we can all tell stories about how each other was wrong on the way up or on the backside of it all. But but, but it's not not something for us to divide over, okay? So so what I want you to know here is there, there is sequence that is given to us, which is oftentimes where there's the most debate and confusion in different eschatological views is with sequence. But I want you to consider these words that I just pointed out to you that maybe we look over sometimes. Paul is actually giving us some sequence in these texts. All right. Um, so the first part of chapter two that, that, uh, Chad went through a couple weeks ago, uh, deals with the two signs or the two mileposts that must happen before Jesus comes back. Okay. In our text today, our text today, Paul's discourse moves its focus from the two things that must come first to what it is that's keeping them from coming. Are you ready for this? Have all the answers for you. The questions of the church at this time, because they got this letter from somebody that masqueraded as an apostle with authority, possibly even Paul, telling them that the Lord had already come. The two questions they might have in their mind at this time is, how do we know he hasn't come? Paul, this dude told us this. You're telling us this. How do we know that what he's saying is wrong? How do we know he hasn't come? Since he hasn't come back, when is it going to happen? Like, what's he waiting for? When, it, when, is, when is the end of, of everything going to go down? Right? Answer, we're waiting for the restrainer to stop restraining. We're waiting for the restrainer to stop restraining. 
And so Paul starts here in verse 6 by saying, And you know what is restraining him now, so that he uh, may be revealed in his time. And our response to that is, exactly, crickets. No, we don't know, Paul. Would you please share with us again? And he doesn't. He says, you guys know to the Thessalonians. But what stinks and is really annoying is that you and I, 2,000 years later, reading this letter to the Thessalonians, don't know. We do not know. But this is who we're waiting on. This is what determines when everything comes to an end or continues to move along like it has, is this restrainer restraining. Interesting stuff. Again, there are so many mysteries when it comes to eschatology for the church, especially in in 2022, you know, um, surrounding the return of Christ that haven't necessarily been revealed or haven't necessarily been given to us, even like they might have been revealed or given to the early church. They might have known a lot more than you and I know. You know, interesting to think about. This is why we have eschatological, again, views, plural, rather than one that we all unify around. So the best way I know I'm going to to exposit and unpack a passage like this, I've already kind of mentioned, um, is to simply make observations from the text. So that, that's how we're going to move through this uh, today. So I want to make five observations from the text that I believe are safe enough for us to go to, to put in our eschatological basket or tool bag and go, yeah, that's a good eschatology. I have a reason, biblical, uh, clear biblical reason to think this way. Okay? So five things I believe we can observe as a clean doctrine concerning this text and its subject. Number one, I already said it, when the restrainer stops restraining, Antichrist will be revealed. Verse six. When the restrainer stops restraining, Antichrist will be revealed. In other words, every day that the Antichrist is not known and not presented in power is another day in which the restrainer has restrained him from doing so. I don't think we typically think about it that way, but that's exactly what's going on. Every day that this guy does not come forth in power is another day that the restrainer has said, nope, I'm going to hold you back today. There's kind of a love-hate thing that I have with this because like, I want to see that day go down. There's a sick part of me that wants to like, be there when Jesus handles business. You know what I mean? And, of course, I want Jesus to come. I want him to set up in all of its fullness and glory his eternal kingdom. I want to see sin purged and never allowed back in. Right? At the same time, every day that the restrainer restrains is another day that you and I get to share the gospel with someone right now who's going to be on the wrong end of that whole deal when that day goes down. And we need to think about it this way. There are people in our homes and in our families and in our workplaces and in the stores that we shop at, the places that we go, who are going to be on the wrong side of God when he appears. Brothers and sisters, we need a heart for people to be on the right side. That that would be a glorious day when Christ shows up and not a horrific one. Okay? And so, again, we, every day that, um, that the restrainer restrains is actually more grace and more mercy 
for a lost world that doesn't deserve it. Think of it that way. Okay. But this restrainers, he's the one holding the keys to this whole deal. He's, he's the one with the meter. <laughs> he's the one with the, with the accelerator and the brake, whoever it is. All right. According to this text, there's this character, which is referred to with the masculine pronoun, he, he, that's keeping Antichrist from his grand entrance. The question, the question again is like, who is it? Who is it? What is it? I don't know. And, and, and you don't either. We don't know. I've heard a lot of people, again, speculate or act like they know. Um, and we, we can't know. We can't know who this is. And, and the annoying thing is that apparently these guys knew, according to verse 6. But we're not explicitly told that by Paul in this letter. So I'm just going to briefly share with you. I'm going to briefly share with you, again, these are not things to stick in your eschatological bag. These are things to consider because it's interesting to consider them. Okay? I want to consider um, a few possibilities of who the restrainer might be or what the restrainer might be. Are you ready? Again, don't throw anything at me. These are just, this is just speculation. Okay? Uh, a, law, government, order, authorities, plural. And, and this may sound a bit underwhelming or simple or even contrary for us to consider. And yet I do not think that you and I really appreciate the amount of restraint that government and law and civil authorities, no matter how godless or corrupt they are, provide for us all. In fact, I think we often tend to think that law and government's the greatest problem, the greatest threat to the people of the earth. I know I do a lot of the time. They're the bad guy. They're up to no good always, right? That's, that's how my brain tends to go. But, but before uh, you, you accuse me of being a socialist, communist, fascist, I, I'm not suggesting that, that government or law is the solution. I am suggesting that it's possibly a restrainer. A restrainer, okay? Of what? Our propensity towards evil. That's what. Have you ever seen Lord of the Flies? Of course you have, right? Um, or most of you have read the book, right? Um, I waited till the movie came out because it's too much work to read books. So, and, and the movie was actually pretty good. Like, it was pretty good, right? And what you got is you got, you know, you got a, bu- a bunch of young dudes whose plane crashes in the middle of the ocean, and all the adults die, and these guys make their way to land and then try to figure out how to do life together. And, and, and before long, they're throwing rocks at each other and putting pigs' heads up on sticks and, and lighting the forest on fire. You know what I mean? Um, that's kind of what we're talking about here. When you remove authority, when you remove order, what we really are and what we really do will come out. It will come out. Uh, the purge is the same way. I've never seen it. I think it's probably too raunchy, but I know exactly what it's about. This idea that one night out of the year, like the government just takes their, the, the law just takes their hands off everything, and you get to go uh, exact things with people that you want to exact them with. Right? That's a terrifying concept. And it, it always blows my mind when I'm talking to people or non-believers or having a discussion that, that believe with their anthropology that man is basically good. We, we, we know. We know it is the opposite. He is not. Left to ourselves in our fallen state, we are capable of much more than you and I think we are. 
much more. And these, these are just a couple examples, these movies, of, um, of, of that. Um, law and authority as a restrainer is attractive on even base levels of how God set everything up. Why do you have parents? Why did he do that? So that you wouldn't kill yourself or somebody else. That's why. It's not just so that you would shower once a week and brush your teeth once a week and change your underwear once a week. It was so that you actually wouldn't do something super stupid towards yourself or towards somebody else because if they weren't there, you would. And you know what I always did with my parents? You know the way that I looked at my parents for doing that? They were the enemy. They were the problem because they didn't allow me to do whatever I wanted to do without challenge. I remember one time this thought came to my head, this example of this. Um, I was in the middle of just a drug craze in my younger years, and I was so like caught up in medicating myself and living that kind of a lifestyle that my dad could no longer ignore it. And I was like 15 at this time. And my dad had no idea what to do with me. No idea. And one day he had the nerve to come into my bedroom with a buddy of his that, like, my dad never even really hung out with this dude, but I knew who he was. He was a soccer referee. He was a referee for soccer. And they sit on my bed, and my dad's like, hey, um, we've got something we need to do. Uh, we're going to go out and get into the car, and I'm going to be take you, taking you to this lockdown facility. You're going into treatment. And I said, no. No, I'm not going into treatment. Like, there's no possible way that I'm going into the car or to this place that you want me to go to. And uh, he's going, no, you, you are going to go. And they're blocking the door, and this dude's here and whatnot. So I grab my stuff, and I'm plotting this whole time, like, when I'm going to make my escape, because there's no way I'm going to this place. There's no way he's getting me there. And so I'm in the car. We're going down the road, and we stop at this busy intersection with these stoplights. You know what I mean? And I'm like... This is it. We're at a red light. Cars everywhere. I popped the lock because it was an old school car. Like this was, this was 80s, right? So I popped the lock and I go. I go behind the 7-Eleven and I'm running through this desert. And homie, the soccer referee, is right behind me. And he's gaining. And it hit me like, oh my gosh, I can't believe my dad thought of this. You know what I mean? And, and he catches me and he tackles me. And the cops come, and this whole thing happens, and I was so pissed at my dad for, I'm sorry, (laughs) for weeks. I was so angry that my dad would not allow me to live the way I wanted to live and do what I wanted to do as I sat in this lockdown facility reading ink blots and listening to people that were way worse than I was, right? He would come to visit, and I wouldn't even talk to him because I was so mad that he would do that to me. He was the enemy. He was the problem. And I don't even know how to tell you how different I look at that today. I don't even know where to start to say this is a ridiculous picture of a parent's love for his kid. A restrainer sent not to ruin my life, but to have mercy on me because otherwise I would ruin it myself. And it's the same for you. God has set things in order, one above the other, so that you and I may live, may play in the sandbox of life 
with other people and not get anyone hurt or killed. This is why authority's there. Even if they're corrupt, even if they're godless, all you got to do is look at Romans chapter 13 if you want to argue this, or 1 Peter chapter 2. It is clear by both of those apostles that government exists, even godless ones, to keep us all playing in the sandbox together. If they weren't here, we wouldn't be here. It wouldn't be 2022 right now. It's a possibility. It's something interesting to think about that law or government or order could possibly be, as we, as we know it now, as we have it now, a restrainer against that which is going to be coming. In fact, it's interesting, one of the things that's kind of compelling about this idea is if you look at what they call this guy in these verses, what do they call him? The lawless one. The man of lawlessness. And so even they don't call him the son of perdition here, which they do in other places. They don't call him Antichrist here, which they do in other places. They refer to him as the lawless one. Just something to think about. Okay. All right. That took way too long. Um, B. So uh, uh, government or law possibly could be uh, the restrainer. Um, B, the church. This is what I was taught. I was taught that the church was the restrainer. Okay, Um, I was taught this because, like I already shared, I was taught a pre-tribulational presupposition or system of thinking or view of scripture. And that presupposition exists to promote and protect the idea that the church exits the world before crap gets real. Okay, that's what I was taught. And, And so if your presupposition is that the church gets snatched away before things get bad, it stands to follow. Right. It's easy to attribute the restraining force to be the Church. Huh. Pre-tribulation rapture happens. Church leaves. Boom. Now everything's running crazy. Makes logical sense. Right? It is true, just like with government, that the church, I believe, restrains. Is a restraining force in this world in many ways. Just because of our worldview. Just because of him who lives in us and inhabits us, coming out of us and having some kind of an effect and some kind of an influence and some kind of an impact on the people, places, and things that are around us, right? I mean, it's clear in Scripture that that even one believer in the home can make a difference to the rest of the people in the home. One believer on a schoolyard can make a difference to the rest of the kids on that schoolyard. One believer... In politics, in an arena of politics, can make a difference to everybody sitting at that table. Okay? We, we, we do have the ability to influence because of how we look at the world and view the world through the gospel. All right? And so it's kind of a scary thought to think about the church going away and, and what things that might let loose or turn loose. Um, the biggest problem, I think, just in this text with viewing this as the church, is in the masculine pronoun that's given. He. Nowhere in Scripture is the church ever referred to as a he. It is always a she. Always feminine. She. It would be really weird if Paul, like, broke that chain on this. Wouldn't make much sense. Something to consider, okay? This is the one where you might laugh at me. Don't laugh, don't laugh at me, okay? Like, hear me out. Um, option number three, 
or C. Michael, the archangel. Um, Michael, the archangel. We don't find him much in Scripture. But let me read to you a couple places where we do. Okay? Daniel chapter 10, I'll read out of that. Uh, in about verse 13, we find this interesting thing happen where Daniel's in captivity along with his people in Babylon. And Daniel's on his knees three times a day. He's just committed to seeking the face of God because his people are being mistreated and it's heavy. And he wants it to end. He wants some relief. And so what God ends up doing is sending him a messenger, an angel, okay, to Babylon to comfort Daniel, to say, hey, God, God hears you. He's got this. As well as to give him some information concerning what's going to happen in the future. The problem is this dude shows up 21 days late. This angel. It's this weird thing. Go look at it when you get home. Daniel chapter 13. This angel sent by God to give Daniel a message shows up 21 days late because he gets caught up fighting the prince of Persia on his way there. And it was so bad and he was getting so crunched that God then had to send Michael to relieve him, basically the bouncer of God, to relieve him from this evil force so that he could get on with delivering his message. This is weird. You can't make this stuff up. That's in your Bible. That's wild. So Michael comes to, to handle business on this force. Okay? And then down in verse 20 of chapter... I'm sorry, chapter 10, not 13, I said earlier. Uh, uh, the angel says now to Daniel, after the message has been delivered, now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. This is world. This is what you and I see. One after another, after another, after another. Trying to take power of something that ain't theirs. Right? And yet, God's got people on it. He says, when I go out, behold, the, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except Michael. Your prince. That's a weird statement. It's a weird statement. What do you see in places like Revelation chapter 12, verse 7? Same thing. War arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And this is, of course, where we see uh, the, the, the angels and Satan cast out of heaven and he comes to earth and it says, woe, woe to you, earth, because this dude's angry and he knows that his time's limited. And so he's come. But we see what, what do we see when we see what little we see of Michael? What's he what's 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 he doing? He's fighting evil. He's fighting evil. He's contending against evil. He is restraining He's restraining it from being all that it could be on the world scene. Interesting thing to think about. He's keeping and maintaining balance and order. And it's an interesting thing to consider. So there's three very different ones that I threw in there for your consideration. Again, don't be dogmatic on any of these. They're just interesting to consider. Okay? At the end of the day, the bottom line is, whatever the restraining force or power may be, we know that it is ultimately God who restrains. 
He is the restrainer with a, a capital R. It is God. It is He who is calling the shots. It is He who is appointing and determining the time of restraint and release. It is He who is using whoever and whatever at His disposal both to keep the peace as well as to bring all things to an end. It is God. Ultimately, we know that. We know that. In other words, it's all under control, not out of control, yet again. How many of you need to hear that? It is all, everything right now is under control. It is not out of control. Not out of control. And this is always the takeaway on this subject for the Christian. So, number one, when the restrainer stops restraining, whoever it is, Antichrist will be revealed. Okay? <laughs> Some of you are like, how are you going to get through four more of these? I don't know. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna try to shorten them. So, um, number two, we'll make, them, we'll make them quick. The spirit of Antichrist is nothing new. It's old. It's nothing new. It's nothing new. Verse 7 is where you find that. Okay? It's just always been, you know, restrained. So it's not something we have never seen. It's something that we've always seen, just not uncontested and completely free to run loose. Listen to what John says to the church in 1 John 2.18. Check this out. Children, it is the last hour. This is 2,000 years ago. And he's telling them, this is the last hour. As you have heard, Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have, past tense, come. Have come. And, and, and you might ask, like, what exactly is it to be Antichrist? Like, what exactly does that mean? It means this. John answers that for us in the same epistle, chapter 4. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Some of you are like, wow, that's way less impressive than I thought it would be to be Antichrist. That's what it is. It's someone who does not confess Jesus as Lord. Interesting. He goes on to say there, which you heard was coming. And listen to this. This is 2,000 years ago to the church. And now is in the world. And now is in the world. So Antichrist is simply this. One who is against Christ. One who is against Christ. Which means that that spirit is closest, closer to us than we think. Like every day. Every day. It's all around you every day. It's working in your workplace with you. Every day. It's shopping with you in your grocery stores. It's sharing the road with you that you drive your car down, right? Maybe even living in the same house as you're living in. Even sitting in the same church, possibly. None of you, of course. The spirit of Antichrist is that which opposes Christ, and that spirit is nothing new or nothing future only, okay? It has always been. It has always been. Number three, the lawless one is backed, endorsed, and empowered by Satan. This is why it's going to look a little different. Verse 9 is what we're talking about right here. This is why it's going to look a little bit different when this guy comes. This is what sets the one that's coming apart from the ones that have been. Not that other antichrists throughout history haven't been influenced by Satan, but that the coming one will be fully empowered, fully empowered by Satan. So it's going to look a little different. 
All right. So, so he's not in and of himself so powerful that he's able to produce supernatural works on his own. He's simply a vehicle. He's a vehicle for bringing forth that which Satan has the power and the permission to do. Okay. And, and what is Satan's purpose in all this? It can all be reduced to the same thing. Satan's purpose in, in everything since the beginning. Opposition to God, promotion of self. That's it. That's his scheme. That's his game. Opposition to God, promotion of self. And you know what? Because we bought the lie, our, our first parents, uh, that's ours too now. That's our default. Opposition to God, promotion of self. That's our, our natural anthropology pre-Jesus. And we get it from him. Okay? We get it from him. Satan is always telling us, don't deny your curiosity. Don't deny your desires. Don't deny your lack, those things that you lack, by following him. But come and appease all of your curiosity and appease your desire and appease your lack by following me. Here, here's a tree. Have a bite, right? And this is, this is how we got to where we're at today. Okay. When Antichrist comes back by Satan, he's not going to be asking this time. He's going to be telling. He's going to be commanding and demanding, which is why many in the church alive at that time will lose their lives. Because it will not be, an, it will not be optional. All right? This brings us to number four, the Antichrist power to deceive. This is a good one. We're almost there. The Antichrist power to deceive is only over unbelievers. I can't even tell you how important this is for you guys to read this part. The Antichrist power to deceive is only over unbelievers, not believers. This is found in verses 10 through 12. Okay. The key phrases are found in verse 10 for those who are perishing, quote unquote, and verse 12, who did not believe the truth. That's who he's coming for. Those are the people who should be scared because those are the people that are going to be deceived. Not you. If you are in Christ, not you. All right. And what, what is the truth where he says who, who, uh, who did not believe in the truth? Those are who are, who are going to be deceived. It's what we just read in John, that, that those who do not believe that Jesus came in the flesh, those who, who do not believe that, that Jesus is the way and the truth, and the life, right? Those are the ones who are in danger. And because the unbeliever did not believe, when God shows up to crash the party, they are going to find themselves being the pinata. They're going to find themselves on the wrong side of God, like we talked about earlier. It's not going to be a glorious day for them. It's not going to be a celebration. It's going to be bad. Because they will be on the wrong side of him. They will experience his wrath. And I want to make sure that we know and we understand this right now because there seems to be a lot of confusion over not making the distinction between this. There's a difference between the wrath of man on the church and the wrath of God on the church. And I just want to take a second to make sure that we're all on the same page. There's a difference between the wrath of man coming upon the church and the wrath of God. And if you fail to distinguish that, you're going to be very confused when you look at end-time things. So there, there is a double wrath going on in those final days. There is a maelstrom of chaos, of judgment, of wrath being poured out in full all the way around, both by man and by God. 
Man's wrath is going to be directed on the church, the people of God. That's why it's going to be a time of trouble, a time of tribulation for those who are alive and exist at that point. The wrath of God, however, is not directed at the church. It's directed at the unbeliever. And part of how it's directed there is by uh, uh, um, the fact that only those who are able to buy the lie and be deceived of Antichrist is the unbeliever. That's part of God's judgment and wrath on them to begin with. In fact, if you, if you notice the language there, his, his judgment in a way kind of starts even before he shows up, even before um, his appearing. Uh, it actually starts prior to his appearing. If you look at verse 11, it tells us that God sends the unbeliever in their current unbelief a strong delusion so that they may believe that which is false. That's a weird verse. He's, God sends that so that they may believe the lie. Okay? Um, that's basically what's, what's being said here. In other words, God is going to remove any possibility of repentance and a turning to him at the point of Antichrist's reveal and power. That's basically what's being said. There will be no repentance granted at a certain point. This is why today is the day of salvation. You know what I'm saying? This is why what you do with him right now in this moment matters exponentially more than anything else. Because I think if you're, if you're like me, you went through the Sunday school classes and you heard all the stories of the last days and there was kind of this thought that I think I, I, I had that was like, you know what? I had enough Bible and enough Sunday school when I was a kid to know that when things get really bad and this dude comes on the scene, I'll know what it is and I'll get right. I'll be okay at that point. I'll just switch teams. No, you won't. That's basically what this verse is saying. No, you won't. You will buy the lie. And that's why what you do with him right now, today, matters. And what the people around you do with him right now, today, matters. And if you're here today and you've never considered this, I want to lay it out as clear as I can if the text isn't already. The day that God returns will be a great and a terrible day for those of you who do not know Christ. But for those of you that do, it will be the greatest day that you have ever experienced that will have no end. No end. And, and, and God is able to do what He needs to do and bring His judgment and pass over who He needs to pass over, right? To handle His judgment and His wrath on the wicked without touching people that He doesn't want to touch. There's this thing way, way back that happened uh, in Egypt called the Passover. I don't know if you remember that. And it's funny because when, when God started judging Egypt for what they were doing to his people, he didn't remove his people before he started doing it. He, he, like, he has smart, articulated judgment. He's not sloppy or reckless with his wrath. His wrath is perfectly directed. And so God's people are there. And um, the godless people are there in this place, and he sends this angel of death through there that, that makes a house call, house by house, but he passes over houses that have, what? Blood on the doorpost. And this is what we're talking about this morning. 
When this all goes down and God comes back, this is the difference between which side of Him you've come down on. If you have blood on your doorpost, you're going to be all right. But if you don't, there's nothing right about what you're going to experience. Nothing at all. It all comes down to having blood on your doorpost. And if you don't have blood on your doorpost, we're obviously talking about the blood of Christ here. If you don't have that, you need to get to a blood bank. Like, in, in fact, you know what? You're sitting in one right now. This is a blood bank right here. There's a guy who, is, who has been very generous with his, with his donations. And he's got the blood type that you need to come through that day. And his name is Jesus. And you don't have to do anything special or any cartwheels or any good works or get yourself cleaned up so that he'll look at you and go, wow, you're a good person. Come on to my team. It doesn't work that way. You need faith to know that Christ is your only hope. He's your only hope. And without him, you are naked before God on that day that he comes back. You have no blood on your doorpost. This is what we're talking about. And I would implore you because I care, because I am scared when I look at texts like this and I look at the reality of what it is that's coming upon the earth, upon the godless. I don't wish it on my worst enemy. And I hope you don't either. And so I would beg you to come. Because of the reality of what this is, I would beg you to come and get blood on your doorposts. To know Christ. How does that happen? You admit, first and foremost, that you are a sinner. I have offended God. And I deserve what's coming. That's the first thing you have to know. To know the gospel. If you don't buy that you're a sinner, if you think you're a good person, you need not apply. I'm sorry. And I'll be praying for you. It's only sick people that know that they're sick that will go and seek a doctor, as he so well put it. That's exactly what's going on here. You need to know that you have a a definite, desperate need for God because you have busted His holiness in your own life and in your own heart. Once that occurs, once you acknowledge that, then you are able to reach out by faith, knowing that Christ is who He said He was and did what He said He did for you so that you're no longer at a deficit of sin but now you're filled up to the top with the holiness and the righteousness of God that he requires. That's it. It's done by faith. If there's anybody that has any questions or that's, that's feeling compelled towards this, um, please come see me or see, grab somebody afterward. Today is the day of salvation because the stuff we're talking about is real. It's real. And life is short. And you're not guaranteed tomorrow or the next five minutes. All right. I've, Forget what the point is. The point is, number four, the Antichrist power to deceive is only over unbelievers, not believers. Okay? Number five, finally. Sorry. Thanks for hanging in there. Number five, uh, Jesus wins. Okay? Uh, verse eight. Some of you were like, dude, you, you like went right over like the best verse in here. Yeah. Like Paul put it in the wrong spot, so I'm putting it in the right spot. It goes at the end, not in the middle. So he didn't know what he was doing. So, um, but, the, but this is the last point. It's found in verse eight. Jesus wins. The believer does not lose. The church does not lose. The gospel does not lose. God does not lose. Jesus wins. As big and as bad and as ugly as this guy is that's coming, that's backed by Satan, and his power is, and his deceitfulness is, and his appetite for destruction is, he loses. He loses. Not not even with much effort. 
on Jesus' part, it seems, according to verse 8. The Antichrist does not stand a chance. Satan does not stand a chance. Jesus wins, and all who are found in him win too. It seems like it's no contest if you look at the, this. He just, Jesus just appears, and he kills him just, just by being present, just by breathing, right, and being present. He kills him. I remember, you remember the first Indiana Jones? I always loved that, that part where uh, they're in, like, Cairo or whatever, and he loses that girl, so he's, like, frantically moving through the streets trying to find, uh, I can't even remember her name. doesn't matter, that gal. And, um, and then all of a sudden he comes into, like, this, this square, and, like, this, the crowd parts, and there's this samurai dude. Do you remember that big, burly, ugly, nasty, sweaty, dressed in black samurai guy with that big old sword and the crowd just parts and this dude just starts swinging this thing like a bad boy. He just starts showing off like he is all that and more. And you're thinking like, oh yeah, and he's done. Like, like there's, there's no contest, right? And so after this dude ends up doing his whole thing, it pans back to Indy and he just like pulls out his gun, shoots and then like yawns, right? And like that's all, that's what I kind of think about is like there's just nothing happening here. There's nothing here to see. I mean, I know there will be, but it's like Jesus is just going to kill him by, by his presence, by being present and in the breath of his mouth. And defeat is certain, like immediately. Uh, Revelation 19, 11 through 16, this is, you know, this is great imagery for us, encouraging. If I can get there, let me read this real quick. Um, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and one sitting on it was called faithful and true. Who is this? And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows except for himself. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11, we see the same type imagery of this sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. And Hebrews chapter 10, as well as a couple other places, hint to us that this is representative of something, which is truth, that he He kills and he judges based on spoken truth and by the very embodiment of truth being present, right? We've seen him defeat Satan this way before when he was taken out in the wilderness, right? How did Jesus defeat him there? Spoke truth. That's how he walked away. It's going to be the same thing here, except Satan doesn't have another interaction with with Jesus after this. It's just done, and it's, it's finished. So truth wins. Jesus wins. You and I who are in Christ win in the end. This is good to know. Russia does not win. China does not win. The United States of America do not win. The deep state does not win. Whatever, however we want to run down the rabbit trail, none of it wins. And the Christians need to live like they know that. For the sake of people who don't know him, you and I more than ever need to live like we know that, like we believe that. Lord, thank you for um, 
your word and, and actually fun texts like this <laughs> that are enjoyable. We don't know every detail of it, God, but, but we know you're coming back and that you win. And so I pray that you would fill your people full, that they would overflow with joy, hope, confidence as they go out and share the gospel with the lost world around them. We thank you for this day. We thank you for how it uh, rejuvenates us and replenishes us coming together in song and in prayer and in fellowship and in the preaching of your word, how all those things fill the tank. And I, and I pray that now that we have gather, gathered and had our tank filled, that we would scatter and empty it on people who desperately need it. All to your glory. Amen.